we're going to be in Jonah. So can you just uh, open there? We went through Jonah 2 uh, two weeks ago. Now, this is unusual for me. I thought that I would take two sermons to do all of Jonah 2, but I pretty much squeezed it all into one sermon, which is, everyone say, wow. Yeah, one sermon in one chapter. That's, I don't know, that's pretty miraculous. Way better than some dude getting swallowed by a fish. Nonetheless, there we learned, uh, that was a joke. <clears throat> so let me do a re- quick recap before we go into chapter 3. Jonah chapter 1, you see Jonah, this, this prophet of success and blessing in Israel, who, who is prophesying God's, uh, God's um, uh, uh, flourishing blessings upon his covenant people in northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, the, the kingdom after King Solomon was split in two, and the upper, 12, uh, upper ten tribes called Israel, and then the, the bottom two tribes, which encompassed Jerusalem city, that was uh, known as Judah. And so uh, after the split, Jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom. And he was preaching to uh, one of the kings, and his, prophet, his, his prophesying was all about success. And you'll extend the borders, and it'll be glorious, and it'll be great. And so it was happening. Jonah had a great life. He would have been respected, well looked after in that time. But then God called him to go to Nineveh, the, the, the somewhat capital city. And we'll go a bit into, into that more next week. Uh, but, but somewhat a capital city of Assyria, this barbaric pagan nation who worshipped fish gods and, and who was well known for their blood shedding. They were the largest superpower ever known on planet Earth up until that time. They were in their third dynasty, really. They were um, uh, in the third age of their kingdom, and they were just dominating the map. And what Jonah knew was that in time to come, in the next couple of generations, what he had heard Hosea and Amos, who were preaching at the same time as Jonah, what he had heard them prophesy was that Assyria was going to come and destroy Israel and Judah for her sins. He knew that. And then here God is telling Jonah, go and preach to Assyria because they're, they're, on, the, they're on the verge of collapse. They're, they're in calamity. They're in evil. They're in sin. And I will judge them and destroy them if they don't repent. Well, you can tell what Jonah would want to happen. He would want them not to repent, to be destroyed, and then they don't get to come and destroy Israel. Obviously, that's God's will. Jonah knew better. He ran away, got into a ship, off he went, and God, as he always does for his covenanted, blood-bought souls, he did not let Jonah succeed in sin. He took him, he brought him back through trial, tribulation, a storm, winds, waves, weeds, a whale, right down to the bottom, right where Jonah needed to be to learn his lessons, and then he was spat out onto the shore, a new man ready to complete the mission that God had given to him. And so Jonah chapter 3 starts in this way. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. That is exactly how the first call started. You see this, this idea, this theme of God's redemption, God's restoration going. It's not simply enough that God has saved you and you'll go to heaven one day. He wants even in your life to to overcome sin, overcome reluctance that you have to his will. He is never done with his children. You need to hear that. You're a wandering saint. You wonder how many times will I fail before God just gives up on me, stops asking me to be involved in his mission and service to the local church and saints. The answer is never. You die, that's when you rest. Until then, God is gloriously redeeming you to be a part of his mission because he loves you. So there it is. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. We see here God's grace, that he has redeemed and restored his servant to go and do his mission, which is quite an ugly mission. Now, we're going to get into what happens in chapter 3, but I want you to know that what's, what we should see as we go through the story, the narrative of Jonah, and that's something that's quite different about Jonah as a prophetical book compared to ones like uh, Haggai, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, um, although Daniel has a bit of bit half and half, it's not mostly Jonah standing up and preaching like Isaiah is. You know, most of it is, thus say the Lord, and then he'll go on to all the prophecies God's given. Whereas Jonah is a narrative. It's a story with very, very little of what Jonah actually says. It's not his teaching, it's the story. And what we need to see is, while I've argued last week, it is historical, it's true, it really happened, The way that it was recorded for us 
was so that we can see a parable happening. We can see something exemplified through the actual history. Um, <clears throat> there's this great uh, comparison going on between Israel, who is unrepentant, who is not bending the knee to God. Right? God's extending the borders, doing great things in Israel, but not because of their obedience. They are still unrepentant. God, they, they are worshipping foreign gods. They're doing sexual immorality and, and pagan worship and sacrifices in the covenant worship to Yahweh. They are goners as far as God's covenant uh, punishments are concerned. That's Israel. And yet at the same time as that is happening, even their prophet is rebellious. So we just saw through Jonah. While that is happening among God's people, we're now going to see Nineveh, this barbarous, horrible, bloodthirsty pagan nation, repent and come and bend the knee to God. This, hum this, this enormous comparison, this juxtaposition between Assyria and Nineveh and Israel and Jonah is, should strike us. So far we've seen this, this parable going on that we've seen the unrepentant Israel and unrepentant Jonah and, and what you see throughout the Old Testament history is that Israel is unrepentant and God judges them, right? If you know your Old Testament history, you can recall how that happens. He sends enemy nations in, he sends enemy nations in, then he restores them, and ultimately he sends them completely into exile. Then he brings them back and restores them for the time of the Messiah. What we see God relating to Israel, as we saw him relating to Jonah, is judged yet ultimately redeemed so that they may uh, fulfill the mission of God in the world. And what we're seeing happening with Nineveh is a parable for what we see God doing with all Gentile nations. He will judge them, yet ultimately redeem them to his son through the preached word. This is, this is so important. This is biblical history. God judges Israel, yet ultimately to redeem her for his purposes. And God is judging the nations, though ultimately to redeem them to his son through Israel's Messiah. We'll see this a little bit more tonight. And what we're going to do tonight is, is quite a lot of uh, worldview building. It's quite a lot of overarching theological themes that we see in the Old Testament into the New Testament. And next week, we're going to go into verse 6 through to 10 and go a lot more specifics of what was happening in Nineveh. But all of that to say, let's now read verse 1 to 5 of Jonah chapter 3. <clears throat> then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Great here meaning large, expansive, impressive, not good and godly. It was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet in 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. That's all we're going to do tonight. May God bless the reading of his word to us. If you're reading the Bible, I think that Jonah chapter 3, at least if you're reading the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 3 is the greatest miracle, the most surprising shock that you will get in the book of Jonah is Jonah chapter 3. Some big fish swallowing a man, him remaining alive, being spat up on the beach after three days. The miracles we see in the, the fourth chapter where God uh, miraculously grows plants and miraculously sends winds, all of those things, they are nothing compared to this. In fact, I want to point out that I think, I think that Nineveh's repentance in Jonah chapter 3 is probably the most shocking, stark miracle that should surprise us above any other Old Testament miracle. Because you might say, well, surely the flood, which was so all-encompassing and powerful, surely that was the greatest miracle. But while that's a miracle of power, that's no miracle of grace. God needs to extend no compassion or grace in order to drown the world in a flood. What is so miraculous about Jonah chapter 3 
is that it is not just amazing in its expanse and amazing in the number, but it is particularly amazing in the grace that is uh, poured out. God, an entire city, he meets them in a very short, maybe five, eight, ten words, right, depending on your translation, through the prophet Jonah, and 120,000 souls repent, believe God, and are swept into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, I know you're, you're, you're itching and you're like, nah, because this is probably one of those fake repentances we see. Right? This happens in Israel. The king comes in, he's godless, God promises destruction, he prays, he repents, offers sacrifices, God relents and helps him win a war, and then he's back at it the next couple of years, maybe a decade later, maybe, maybe the, the prophet dies off and then he returns to his evils. We, we see that happen. But Jesus believes that Nineveh truly repented. When he's preaching and he's talking and arguing with the Jews, the Pharisees of his day, he tells them that Nineveh, at the preaching of Jonah, repented. And they will rise up on the day of judgment and condemn those Jews who were alive in Jesus' day because they had a better preacher than Jonah. Right? Jesus at least wanted to be there. Correct? He didn't have to get spat up on the earth, on the, on the shore of this earth by some heavenly whale because he was reluctant. He at least wanted to be there. He at least showed compassion, loved them and preached. And obviously, because he was the God-man, the Messiah, Jesus, the great prophet, was greater than Jonah. Yet the people didn't believe. And yet Nineveh, who never had a prophet before, didn't have a, didn't have a single scratch of a prophecy on, on, with ink on paper in their old books and scrolls. They didn't have any of that. Yet they hear this tiny little sermon from Jonah and repent. Jesus says they will condemn his own generation. So Jesus believes that these Ninevites, 120,000 of them or so, thereabouts, repented truly and were swept into the kingdom. I want us to view that because if we don't, then, then you'll have a pessimistic, critical, un, unbiblical view of what happens here. This is meant to shock us. That's annoying. <clears throat> this is meant to shock us. But if we, this is also meant to, to condemn us. This is meant to put blame on you. As, as a kind of shame on you, have you not been reading the Bible with open eyes? You remember Jesus walking along the road to Emmaus with those two, two disciples, and they were saying, oh, you know, we have no idea what to do with our lives. This Jesus fellow, he was meant to bring hope to Israel, but he was killed, and we don't know what's happening. And Jesus says to them, you hard-hearted fools, are you so slow to believe all that the Old Testament has said? That comes to you and I tonight. If we read Jonah 3 with a hint of surprise, we're supposed, if we have a biblical worldview, if we've been reading scripture and believing God's promises, we're supposed to read Jonah 3, this mass revival in a moment, and we're supposed to go, finally, this makes sense. What's with all the rebellion? What's with all the kings flourishing in sin? I thought God's promises encompassed salvation for all nations. This is on track. This is meant to be happening. This is by no means surprising. It's surprising that this hasn't happened yet. That's supposed to be our view. If you have a view of God's covenant to the world that includes the promises that he has made to every, uh, through every book of the Bible up to the point of Jonah, and of course, onward in our entirely completed Bible. <clears throat> let's keep going. Let's, let's look here. God's covenant, I want to go through a few points here, make, make some arguments with you of how you should view history, current world, and the future. Number one, God's covenant with Israel had from the beginning a universal dimension. The entire history of Israel is supposed to be a sermon to the nations who were watching, and all of the blessings of Israel were designed to overflow to the nations. Right? When, when God redeemed Abraham, picked him out of this godless Babylonian city, him and his wife and his servants, come over here, I'm going to create a nation out of you. And through you, every nation, every family on earth will be blessed. From that moment on, with, with the background promise that came from, jo that, from Noah, that, that God would not again flood the earth in judgment. 
with the background promise of Genesis 3.15 that through Adam and Eve, a seed would come who would crush the head of the, of the serpent and bring about salvation for God's people. All of this should be waiting. We should be expectant that something is going to happen at the hand of the Almighty God in redemption. God promised through Abraham, every nation, every family will be blessed through you. God's relationship with Israel was supposed to be looked on by all the other nations. They were supposed to say, what a glorious thing it is to live with Yahweh. What an amazing thing it is to not have to bring your children to be sacrificed. That's a blessing. I know you've got teenagers and that seems like you'd love, no, it's a blessing to not sacrifice your children. They were supposed to see this glorious relationship between Yahweh and Israel and say, we want in on that. We see the, the flourishing in human uh, our society that comes about by God's laws. And the blessings that were poured out onto Israel were supposed to, they were supposed to overflow to all the nations. Psalm 67 hints of this when it says, let me read it to you. Psalm 67 speaks of this very reality. It says the following. And it's the, the, the psalm from which we receive the title of our sermon series. It says this is an Israelite praying. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Right? That's a good prayer. It's Israel focused. Verse 2. So that your, your way may be known on earth. Your saving power among all nations. Do you hear the prayer? God, please bless Israel so that all people may know about you. Verse 3, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the people with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let all the peoples praise you. So what's going on is that Israel was supposed to be blessed so that every other nation can come into that covenantal blessing. That was at least the design. The problem is that they did it so very poorly. So number two, Israelite, uh, Israel's failure did not just mean that they failed to receive blessing. It did not just mean that they would be punished. It meant that they would also fail to be used in the mission of God as, as they were originally commanded to be. They were not, they, they were upstream of the Gentiles. By damning themselves up, not only did they lose out on the flow of God's blessings, but so did all of the other nations. A blessing cannot overflow if it is all dried up. That is, a, that is an axiom. <clears throat> so, so we see this in such, to such an extent, go with me, Israel supposed to be blessed, to be a blessing. They were, they, they, they were blessed, but they turned that blessing into a condemnation by their sin, by their godlessness, by their rebellion. To such an extent, though it goes up and down throughout Israel's history, it was to such an extent that it climaxed in the time of Jesus. So that when he came, as John chapter 1 tells us, that, that he came to the world that was created through him and by him and for him, he came to his own, John chapter 1 says, and yet his own did not receive him. Those who, they should have cultivated a, not just Israel, but a world that was ready for the Messiah. They should have been preaching, living, speaking, praying, worshipping in such a way that other nations and other kings had come to bend their knee to Yahweh so that Jesus would come as the God-man into the world and would receive to himself all the nations. That through him, all those nations would be blessed. He would rule from Israel, create a great glorious empire of peace and prosperity. At least that was supposed to happen. Instead, when Jesus comes, he's met with hostility from the moment he is in his mother's womb. With the great king Herod, similar to our politicians, seeking to slaughter every infant born under two for his own political purposes. Herod apparently was a feminist. He was pro-abortion, let's just say that. <clears throat> Moving on, that's off the notes. Jesus comes into the world from conception through his life, 
through his, through his living, he's opposed. Then he comes into, into public ministry and he's attacked, opposed. He's called a fool, a drunkard, a demon-possessed man. His mother is thrown into some uh, immoral slander, right? Everybody's attacking him and his family and his teaching, questioning his authority. He is continuously opposed by those who is meant to come to save. Though, of course, we know God's sovereign. We know God doesn't have some, some scrunched up piece of paper in heaven that was plan A. Jesus, come down, establish a kingdom. What do I do now? Plan B, he'll die on a cross. We know this was always the plan. God's plan would not be thwarted by human sin. And yet, we must still recognize that while God had a sovereign plan, he did have to Israel a, 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 a perceived, a revealed, a prescribed purpose. They were still guilty for not walking in the plan that he had originally told them. So, that Jesus coming, he was condemned by the Jews, killed by those, as is said through the preaching in the book of Acts. They did not comprehend that he was the Lord of glory or they would not have killed him. They slaughtered the God of life so that Jesus condemns them. And in AD 70, this is historical fact, in AD 70, Rome came, surrounded Jerusalem, filled with all of the Israelites, and they came through, besieged them for two years, tore down their walls, slaughtered every woman, man, and child in those walls. By that point, there was not much to fight. The people on the inside of the, of the walls had already started eating their children, eating their own defecation out of starvation, murdering each other, lighting people on fire. This is what was happening in that time. And Rome came in, destroyed them all, and burned the temple. But one brick was laid upon another. It was entirely flattened. What about God's glorious purposes to come through Israel? <clears throat> Instead of the Messiah coming and establishing this glory to the obedient Israel, he takes it from the Israelites. He takes away the glorious covenant of redemption from them, not entirely, never entirely. His purposes, as Paul says, and promises are irrevocable. God still has a purpose with ethnic Israel. But the church age that has been going on for the last 2,000 years is, true or false, predominantly Jewish or Gentile. It is entirely, predominantly, that, that sounds dumb, it is majorly, mostly Gentile. Why? Because Jews, having failed in all of their covenant commitments, were cast to the side. As Romans 11 says, they were cut off like a branch. They were sliced off, thrown in the fire, and the Gentile branch was grafted onto the tree that we might now flourish with this Jewish roots. <clears throat> so they missed out on this whole Great Commission period that may, have, may last two, two and a half thousand years. It may last 2,000 years and be done in about 20 years. We don't know. It could last 10,000 years, 50,000 years. We are not sure. But what we know is that until the very end of the church age, the Jews as a nation are missing out, mostly. There is only a sprinkling of Jews within the covenant people of the church at the moment. I want you to go to... Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21 and verse 33. There is scarce more tragic parables in the Bible than this one. This is Jesus in his final week coming up to when he would be betrayed. And you need to see the timeline. He's been preaching, entirely opposed his whole life by the people who were supposed to receive him. He, they never noticed, or at least they didn't outwardly say, this is God's man, this is the Messiah, let's bend our knee. But for political, monetary uh, reasons, they did not bend the knee to him. So in the final week, Jesus is in the showdown. He's come into Jerusalem, thrown them out of the temple, sat down in the teaching position in the temple, and starts going, cutting loose at these men. The Pharisees, this is where, I can't, we don't have time. He goes loose at them. You'll read over in Matthew 23, uh, 22, and then into 23, the, the woes that he preaches against these people, these, these, uh, these hypocrites, these 
these vipers, these asps, these snakes, these whitewashed tombs. He goes, he goes covenantal. He goes Old Testament on these guys. That's how theologians say it. He went Old Testament. <clears throat> so, but in Matthew 21, verse 33, we read this parable that he tells in this final week. Okay, they're opposing him. He's telling them what's about to happen to them. Matthew chapter 21. Jesus says this. It's a long one. Please stay focused as you can. Here another parable, Jesus says. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Right? He's an investor. He owns a place. He's a wealthy man. He's purchased land, got it ready for perfect, beautiful uh, uh, grapes to grow. He even put everything needed in it. The guys who were going to come in didn't need to build anything. It was going to grow. They had a wine press there to make wine. It was all going to be awesome. So he set it all up, and then he rented it out to tenant, and then he left for a while. When the season for fruit drew near, okay, so he's in his far-off country, he thinks, man, it's about time that my wine should be arriving in a 12-pack on my front door from my vineyard that I've invested in, should be coming really soon, I'll send my servants to go and collect my investment. He sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Verse 35, and the tenants... So the tenants are those who are looking after the vineyard who are supposed to be. They took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when his, the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And Jesus poses this question to the hearers, these leaders of Israel. He says, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And these smart teachers of the law, these Pharisees, they perk up, they say, well, obviously... He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It was marvelous in our eyes. They're scratching their head. They have no idea what he's talking about. He says to them, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, now they understand. They perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Do you see what's going on? This parable of the tenants is Israel, who when God sent to them a prophet to teach them and correct them, they killed them. He sent them Isaiah. They sawed him in four pieces. He sent them others. They killed them. They stoned them. They, they scraped their skin off of them. They burned them alive. They threw them to the lions. This is what the people of God did to the prophets of God. Then finally, right, this, this is a parable. It's not real. God didn't actually think, well, if I send Jesus, they'll love him. He knew what was going on. It says in that Old Testament quotation, this is the Lord's doing. And yet, he sent his son. Surely they'll listen to him. They take him. They crucify him. And so they were judged. They were put to death. But this is the part that we want to see so clearly. It says, they said it and Jesus confirms it, that the, the master, God the Father, will take that vineyard away from those tenants, away from the Jewish population, and give it to a people producing its fruits. Romans 11 confirms all of the New Testament shows us, the history of the book of Acts is showing this, that God gives it to Gentiles. That's why the church is not made up mostly of Jews. It is made up mostly of Gentiles. In judgment to their rebellion, God has given the gospel, its riches, its glories 
to the nations that otherwise did not know God before the coming of Jesus Christ. This is Old Testament history that we just read in the parable of Jesus. Now, I want to show you that Jonah and Assyria are a picture of this very thing going on. This has always been God's plan to bring the gospel of God's grace in Jesus to the nations. And what happens with Assyria through repentance in Jonah's preaching is a, is a foreshadowing of that. <clears throat> they show us that even if we are mission reluctant as Christians, we don't want to go to the ends of the earth. We don't want to bring those people who look different to us, eat differently to us, live differently to us. We don't want to take the mission to them. If we will be reluctant, God's mission will go on and we ourselves will be the ones left behind. For his purposes will never fail. They always continue. God's purpose is the establishing of his kingdom. That's what Jesus just said. The kingdom of God. The establishing of his kingdom through and among every nation on earth. What I want you to, what I want you to see is not just, not just a story, not just some truths about you should go on missions, we should send missionaries. I want you to realize, I want you to have a Christian worldview, which is so much more than just believing truths. Christian worldview is everything you learn, maths, how to stack a dishwasher, history, it's all through the lens of Scripture. Right? Everything is Christian. So that as you learn history, you don't see two types of history, the stuff we learn in the Bible and then history. My friends, whether you read it in a secular textbook or on Wikipedia, when you read it, you know the Scripture does not tell me exactly about ancient China. And yet, I know, history is God's history. History is the history of God working among all nations in different ways, in different uh, purposes, and in different degrees, but all of history is God's history. The invention of the wheel happened as God foreordained it. The invention of penicillin happened as God ordained it. The conquering of the islands of, of Britain, that happened as God had ordained it. All of history is God's history. And therefore, all of the future is God's future. Don't just think there's a couple of things that God has ordained. The rest is sort of, you know, humanistic. That's a non-Christian way to view the future. God is the God of every day, every season, every year, every nation. He rules over it all. So when you look to the future, what you need to expect, I don't care what they tell you about global warming. I don't care, or climate change, I was told it's called these days. I don't care what they tell you about about evolution, I don't care what they tell you about societal downfall. Some of it may be true, although I know that the world will not be destroyed through climate change because God literally promised Noah that he would not again, that the seasons would continue normally until he comes back. So there you go, covenant promise from God, climate change will not destroy human nature. He's getting political, kind of, maybe it's fun, okay? But what you need to see is, is that, is that all of the future is going to happen according to God's purposes. So ultimately, what I'm saying is that every nation into the future, Isaiah 55, look to verse 3 and 4 and 5. Now, this is a, a promise to the Israelite people, but it is a promise that overflows to all people. Okay, so while God is promising through Isaiah... Judgment, yet redemption. He says, verse 3, Incline your ear to me, come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. That's the king, the quintessential historical king of Israel, who God had promised the kingdom would be established through. God's saying that to anyone who hears, Gentile or Israel, To anyone that hearkens to my voice and your soul may live because the love that I had for David will go to you. Here's my proof of that. He then says, Behold, I made him, that is David, all right? In the background, this also applies to Jesus, but at least in this context, he's speaking of David. Behold, here's the confidence that anybody, Jew or Gentile, can come to Yahweh and be saved. I made him, David, a witness to the peoples. That's that's Gentiles a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. That's non-Israelites. A nation he doesn't know will be his people. And a nation that did not know you shall run to you. That's God's promise to David. 
Your kingdom will be established so that Gentile nations come to you. Because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. God's promising to Israel, because of his love and covenant for David, anybody that hears, I'm going to make David a king over many nations. And of course, that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the king of all nations. They should come, bend the knee, come to him. But let's keep on going. Isaiah 55. Go next over to Isaiah 56. Right? The context. 56 comes after 55. Flows right into it. Now, we're going to look at Isaiah 55, 10 to 13 next week. Um, but now we see salvation for Gentile foreigners through Isaiah's preaching. So I'm going to read quickly, but I hope that it pick, uh, you pick up these first eight verses. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, keeps my Sabbath, does not profane it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, right? let not the Gentile who has come under God's covenant promises, already great commission uh, clues there, let not that foreigner say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Are you a Gentile back in Isaiah's day? Don't ever think if you come into the people of God that you'll be cut off. You can receive Israel's promises through Israel. Then he says, let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. Does that make sense? A eunuch is somebody who for religious pagan purposes chopped off their reproductive organs. God's going to say to them so poetically and redemptively, don't let a single eunuch coming from maybe the Babylonian courts into the courts of the Jews, don't even let that man say, I'll never be a father. I'll never know a legacy. I'm a dry tree. God says even to that man, you will have a legacy, though it will be spiritual and not physical. Verse 4, for thus says the Lord to the eunuchs, who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. In other words, to the eunuchs who come and repent and follow me, I will give him in my house, within my walls, a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. What glorious promises God is giving. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister him, to love the name of the Lord and to his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. You remember when Jesus says that? When he bursts into the temple, kicks everybody out of the Gentile court for selling things, and he says, this area is supposed to be filled with worshipping Gentiles. My father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. Where's the eunuch? Where's the Gentile? Why is it filled with Jews making money? That was the heart of Jesus. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, okay, they're all in in exile, they're in every other nation, they're gone. He will gather them, yet it says, he declares, I will gather yet others to him, besides those already gathered. God's saying, I will bring in all the outcasts of Israel, and with you, outcasts of every nation. Quickly go to John chapter 10, 16. Keep those words ringing in your ears. John chapter 10, 16. You guys are keeping up well, and I commend you. John chapter 10, 16, again, Jesus speaking to the Jews who had rebelled against God's covenant and opposed his Messiah. He's speaking of himself as the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. He says, verse 15, Just as the Father knows me, and I know my Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. End. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. 
For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Jesus is saying, in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies, I have sheep that are brown, black, white, Asian, Madagascarian, everything. They're everywhere. They're not just Jews. They're from every fold. I must bring them also. I need them. They are mine. I've purchased them. I'm going to lay my life down for them. I deserve them. They're my inheritance. I will bring them through the preaching of the gospel. We're focusing on the kingdom of God encompassing all nations through the promises given to Israel. Go also with me to Psalm 110. Yes, I could have given you all the quotes in order so you weren't going back and forth, but this is in logical order. Here we have, this is the most quoted portion of Scripture in the New Testament. The New Testament goes back and quotes this chapter more than any other chapter in the Bible because it's so central. There's David speaking and he says, Yahweh says to my Lord, Jesus goes on to explain that this is God the Father speaking to God the Son. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So Jesus, come and be king, ruling beside the Father until all of your enemies, every kingdom, bows its knee to you or is destroyed. Verse 2, Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, speaking to Jesus. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And everybody scratched their head wondering what the heck that means. It means that Jesus is on the throne currently ruling over the world, but bringing his reign into history through the preaching of the gospel into each nation, people, tribe, and tongue. All nations are going to be under his rule in some measure. Look at verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Jesus is king, dominating and bringing the nations to be his disciples. And we're going to finish here on... No, we will do that next week. We just don't have time. Here's, here's what I want to tell you. I, I promise you each week we would also look at some historical examples of, and biographies of Christians, missionaries who had gone, because I want you to be inspired by these you know, more real, non-biblical examples, because I just know the tendency, the Bible's the Bible, right? Give me real history. Well, while I don't agree with that, I, I, I love good bio, biographical history. Back in the 17 to 1800s, right, late 1700s to early 1800s, burdened with this understanding, burdened with the reality that as he studied scripture in in England, William Carey, who became a missionary later to India, William Carey realized that as he was doing church and going on the the, the way that they did it among the Baptists in England, he was realizing this is not the calling of, of the church. We're not supposed to just... Go to church on Sunday, live our life, be biblical, and then celebrate when when the queen or king goes and dominates some other far-reaching land out there. That's not the whole of it. There's got to be more than this. He was studying, he he was reading, he was learning, and he realized the great commission that was given to the apostles is still applicable to us and to every Christian generation. The rich, the wealthy, the well-off, the well-learned English church is responsible to get the the gospel to the nations at all costs. He started disseminating this idea and getting quite negative feedback. Kerry believed that it was the responsibility of Christians to take the gospel to all those who had not heard it, especially the nations. Many believed that that calling had died off with the apostles. It wasn't just a tendency. They theologically stated that command of the Great Commission died with the apostles. It was made to them. That was it. At a meeting of Baptist leaders in the late 1700s, he was a newly ordained Baptist minister, a young man, full of energy, full of zeal, full of hope for the mission. He stood up and argued 
for the value of overseas missions. Can you imagine it? Never really been done by the Baptists in England before. We should take our money, poor though the Baptists were, and send good, well-trained men overseas to the other nations. We think, obviously, but he was abruptly in the middle of his address. Can you imagine this? In the middle of his address, he was abruptly interrupted by an older minister who said, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Sit down. You're an enthusiast. When God wants to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. That man features in every biography of William Carey that has gone around the English and other speaking world. He's gone down in history as the man who opposed, the man who went on to be a great, successful, fruitful missionary among the people of India, translating the Bible into multiple languages. They are still used today as the foremost translation because he did such a good work with them, leaving behind not just establishing a missionary society in England, which he did, but then also going himself. He never meant to be a missionary. He just wanted to start a society and send somebody. No one would go. And he went, well, I look like a hypocrite. I guess I'll go. And he went and God used him so much for you know, us only going if we feel called, if we hear a voice. There is nations out there that need the gospel. Who will go? He wrote later on, uh, after this, yeah, this man stood up and shouted him down. I don't know whether he continued the, the, the speech or whether he just sat down. But later on, he went on to write a book that is called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. Long title. You should read it. It is awesome. Only about four chapters, quite short. Amazing. This, this pioneer making this case that we should preach the gospel to other people. Amazing work. He argued that Jesus' Great Commission applied to all Christians for all times, and he castigated fellow believers of, of his day for ignoring it. He was saying to them, and I want us to hear this, multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. Could that come against us? Could that castigation land on us? As we look at this guy who stood up and, and shouted down William Carey and say, you wouldn't say that. You don't want to go down in the biographies as the guy who says that out loud. How many of us live like we believe that guy had the more biblical position? How many of us look at Jonah's example of running away from the mission called for him to do and think that we're better than Jonah, not realizing we live in that same pattern if we hold the gospel to ourselves, do not seek its explosion to the nations, the funding of it, the giving towards it, the going if able, or trusting God to send us even if we're unable. I want to land here tonight. This, this shows us, this story of Jonah going to Nineveh, preaching a very short but tumultuous and effective sermon. I want you to know that in the hands of a sovereign God, your setbacks are never meant to tell you to stop. Setbacks are never meant to tell you stop with this mission you're on. It's like Kerry experience. It's like Jonah experience. They're only ever to stir you up, to test you, and to harden your zeal on the mission. Setbacks never don't ever interpret them to mean. God just wants me to stop trying. <clears throat> I want you also to view history and the future with a biblical worldview. So that like Judson, I mean, uh, Adoniram Judson, who we spoke about going to Burma, you can say the future is as bright as the promises of God. Say what you want about the state of the world. The future of God's mission is bright because he made promises for it to be so. I want you also to think, are you reluctant to sacrifice for missions, to emphasize or, or even go on missions? We must hear the indictment of Jesus Christ and his generation and beware that if we are a hindrance to mission, we will be a hindrance to revival here. We line ourselves up for judgment 
and harsh lessons to be learned. I want us to believe that what happened through Jonah and Nineveh can happen in any nation God sends somebody to because he's sovereign and no one is particularly more sinful than Nineveh and no one is worse of a missionary than Jonah. Let's pray. Father God, it is glorious to think upon the grand narrative that you have been telling since the beginning of time, that you are establishing a people who are yours. You're saving us out of our sin, out of our our, our idolatry, out of our rebellion through the death of your son, Jesus Christ, that he ascended to the throne after dying for our sins, that he rose to life after going to death for us. That is our king. And Lord, we thank you that in your grace and your glorious power and sovereignty, you have saved even the likes of us. We are worse than Jonah. We are worse, Lord, than the Ninevites. We know no one more sinful than ourselves. And may every heart in this room, Lord, feel that reality. May we be overwhelmed with the sense of grace that you have given to us. And Lord, may we therefore see nobody as less deserving of the gospel than us. May we speak up tomorrow at work on the train, on the bus, as we're walking to our neighbors, with our family members. Would you bless that word as it goes out to bring fruit? Lord, would you continue to establish your kingdom here, in the, in the nations of the world, everywhere that your preachers are, and yet even where they are not, send them. Lord, that Jesus may be heard, known, loved, cherished, rejoiced, and worshiped upon among the nations. We love you. We thank you for including us in your gospel purposes. We pray all these things in our King Jesus' names. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.